Well, we, we've started a series on Elijah. There's not a book named after him, but he, he's a big deal in the Bible, and in his name even comes up in the Gospels, in the New Testament, and in at least one other book. And uh, he was just quite the prophet, quite the prophetic figure in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at his life and ministry for a few weeks to lead up to the summer. So we're in 1 Kings chapter 17, and we'll get our bearings in verse 8, and then we'll, the main passage will start in verse 17. You know, I've heard people call the Bible a uh, sort of God's instruction book or God's owner's manual. And it's really not because, and I hope that doesn't sound like heresy, but, you know, the owner's manual when you buy something is, well, here's how I'm going to operate this thing. You know, here's how I'm going to run it and understand it. And if you read the Bible, what you find out is that, that you and I do not control our lives, ultimately. And if there's anything it's not, it's not a self-help book. It's a resurrection book. You know, dead people can't go get... They can't help themselves. Dead people can't drive themselves to the hospital. They're, they're dead. It's a resurrection book. And, um, and I don't just mean that metaphorically. I mean, actual... It's a book with real bodily, physical, time and space resurrections. And, of course, we celebrated the great one three weeks ago at Easter, the resurrection of Jesus. And there are other, other resurrections. Uh, one famous one is when Jesus went to the tomb of his friend, and Jesus had friends, his friend Lazarus, family friend, friends with his sisters. And he went to his tomb, and this is before Jesus himself died and was raised. And he went and by his power raised Lazarus from the dead. It was a resurrection. Public eyewitnesses. Uh, there may have been resurrections done by God before the one we're about to read. But in the biblical account, this is the first resurrection recorded in Scripture. So let's look at it. First Kings 17, we'll start in verse 8, and then we'll go to verse 17. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the valley of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I have, in, I have instructed a widow there to feed you. Then verse 17, sometime later the woman's son became sick. He grew worse and worse, and finally he died. Then she said to Elijah, O oh man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? But Elijah replied, Give me your son. And he took the child's body from her arms, carried him up the stairs to the room where he was staying, and laid the body on his bed. Then Elijah cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, why have you brought tragedy to this widow who has opened her home to me, causing her son to die? And he stretched himself out over the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, please let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's prayer, and the life of the child returned. And he revived. Then Elijah brought him down from the upper room and gave him to his mother. Look, he said, your son is alive. 
Then the woman told Elijah, Now I know for sure that you are a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, there was a piece in the New York Times. It was an opinion piece, and uh, you may have actually seen it. It's by a woman named Kate Bowler. And Kate Bowler is presently on faculty at Duke Divinity School. She's an assistant professor in the history of Christianity in, uh, in North America. So she, she teaches American church history. Let me just read the, the beginning of the article to set this up. She says, On a Thursday morning a few months ago, so this was 2016, I got a call from my doctor's assistant telling me that I have stage 4 cancer. The stomach cramps I was suffering from were not caused by faulty gallbladder, but by a massive tumor. I am 35. I did the things you might expect of someone whose world has suddenly become very small. I sank to my knees and I cried. I called my husband at our home nearby. I waited until he arrived so we could wrap our arms around each other and say the things that must be said. I have loved you forever. I am so grateful for our life together. Please take care of our son. Then he walked me from my office to the hospital to start what was left of my new life. But one of my first thoughts was also, oh God, this is ironic. I recently wrote a book called Blessed. And what she goes on to say is that her area of focus academically had been, she she had done 10 years of research on the prosperity gospel. So when you think about maybe people you see on TV, the kind of you know, believe in God and claim these blessings and plant seeds with financial gifts that this, you know, prosperity will come into your life. She had researched that from an academician standpoint for the last 10 years, came out sort of with her, probably her first big book called Blessed, and then she gets cancer. So then she goes on to say this. She starts talking about how we use the word blessed, even as a, as a hashtag. She says, over the last 10 years, being blessed has become a full-fledged American phenomenon. When an America's next top model star took off his shirt, audiences saw it tattooed above his bulging pectorals, just like mine. When I thought I was the only one who had thought of that. When Americans boast on Twitter about how well they're doing on Thanksgiving, hashtag blessed is the standard hashtag. It is the humble brag of the stars. Hashtag blessed is the only caption suitable for viral images of alpine vacations and family yachting in barely their bikinis. It says, I totally get it. I am down to earth enough to know that this is crazy. But it also says, God gave this to me, adorable shrug. Don't blame me, I'm blessed. And she says, blessed is a loaded term because it blurs the distinction between two very different categories, gift and reward. It can be a term of pure gratitude. Thank you, God. I could not have secured this for myself. But it can also imply that it was deserved. 
thank you, me, for being the kind of person who gets it right. Isn't that perceptive? The way we use that word? I mean, have you ever seen somebody post a picture of like, you know, that they're being, you know, like maybe the letter of termination, take a photograph of it and put hashtag blessed under it? I've never seen that. And think about the contrast, even just as far as our own worship this morning. Think about, just let, let me just read part of this again. This is from Hebrews chapter 11, and that's a famous chapter in the New Testament. It's this list of all these people who exercise faith. Some of them are really some of the famous people from the Old Testament. Some are lesser known. But here's a little summary of people that we would regard as blessed by God and having special relationship with God. All right, here's their blessed life. Uh, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. They were so blessed. Can't you tell? Uh, I want to look at this passage from, you know, from the vantage point of what does it look like when God is blessing and it sure looks like he's not. And I want to ask two questions of this passage. And sometimes I just use this template as my, as my way of looking at a passage because I, I want to kill two birds with one stone. I want to talk about this passage with you, but I, I want you to be learning how to study God's word yourself. And as we've talked about, if you've been here, you probably know the questions I'm about to ask. There's two questions you can ask of any passage to help you get to how is this showing me the gospel? Really, how is this passage getting me to Jesus even if he's not mentioned in the passage? And the questions are, what does this passage show us about us who need redeeming, who need rescue, to use Jonathan's term from last week? What does the passage show us about ourselves who need redeeming? And then what does this passage show us about God who does the redeeming, who does the rescuing? So let's ask those questions of this passage, all right? So what, what do we learn about ourselves? Look in verse 17. Now, the, the context was set up last week. This is not, strictly speaking, Israelite Territory. This is sort of home turf base area for Baal worship. It's a Gentile place. And God has sent this widow, one of his, uh, God has sent this prophet, one of his you know, spokesmen, to this Gentile woman in Baal territory. Baal is a, a local deity. And uh, as Jonathan talked about, Last week, Baal was God of things like rain and fertility. And one thing that we extrapolate from that is that he was regarded as as really the God of life itself. Uh, There's been a severe famine in this area. Um, Elijah was used by God to rescue this woman from her plight. She's a widow. She has this young child. And she's just been rescued. 
And you've heard the expression, out of the frying pan into the fire. Well, we just sort of left the frying pan, and now we're back in the fire. Her son struggles to breathe, and then he can't breathe, and then her child dies. So how does she respond? Uh, Elijah is staying at her house, and she says to him, we'll start in verse 17. Sometime later, the woman's uh, son became sick. Excuse me. He grew worse and worse, and finally he died. Then she said to Elijah, O man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? Now, what, what did she just do? She just did something very human. And, and let's go back to hashtag blessed. If my life going great is God's blessing, you know, if look how great my trip is, or look how fit my body is, or look how great our yard looks, or look how great these kids are doing, if that's blessed, then what is the only thing that it can mean when life is bad? Or tragic? Calamity? I'm cursed. Why am I cursed? And this is a really, really human thing to do, is to look at tragedy and ask, what does that mean? And the answer is, the tragedy means that God is punishing me for my sin. And listen to it again. Her son just died. She's not sick. Her son just died. What does it mean? What have, man of God, what have you done to me Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? Now, all right, so we're asking the question, what what do we see about ourselves? It is our tendency when we experience real tragedy. I don't mean setbacks. No, we can do it then too, but I mean real loss and pain and tragedy. To respond that God is punishing me. Let let me ask you this. What have you experienced in the past or what are you experiencing right now that makes you feel that God is punishing you for something you did? And everybody here is different. Everybody's got their own story. But I think you would see some common threads if... I could just talk to each of you individually and compare the stories. Uh, Let me give one example. This is not the ultimate example. This is an example. But, you know, there's a lot of misuse of sex. There's a lot of misuse of sex in our culture. There's a lot of misuse of sex with people that grew up in the church and claim to believe all this stuff and say that they want to obey it. A lot of sex outside of marriage before it and outside of it and after it. Uh, Using it selfishly. Using it abusively. And I've certainly talked with my fair share of people who, you know, that was part of their life. That was part of their past. And then something happens. They get sick. Or maybe they finally settled down and they got married and they committed to this person. They really have committed to this person and then they have a child and the child is sick. Or they can't have a child. 
And what, 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 so what does this mean? Because we're going, what does it mean? It means God is punishing me. God is punishing me for sexual immorality. And you know what the irony is? In that moment, it feels like, okay, finally, I'm taking my sin seriously. And the irony is, when we think that something like that can pay for it, we have a light view of sin. That's the irony. Because if you read God's Word in the Scriptures, here's what you're going to find. Is that we cannot fix it. We cannot pay our debt. And God, in different ways, has been saying that from the beginning. You can't pay your debt. But in the moment, it feels like, ah, he's doing this, and now there's this loss, or this setback, or I lost my job, or I lost my health, or I lost this friend, or this relationship is broken. And that's God making things square when he is saying that cannot make it square. It's really important. And and we're going to get to this in a second. But it really gets to a deeper theological question. Do you believe that there is still punishment unfolding for your sin? And I, I need you to decouple two things. I need you to decouple punishment, like judicial punishment and fatherly discipline. Punishment is judicial. It's driven by justice, legal standards, holiness. Discipline, when done rightly, comes out of parental love. And God does discipline His children. In fact, the New Testament says, if He doesn't discipline you, be concerned. When He does discipline you, He's treating you like His son or daughter. But the deeper theological question is, do you believe that for your sin, past, present, and future, there's still punishment unfolding? It's a window into our heart. Like, what I really think gets me square with the house. Well, what do we, what do we learn about God? And, you know, again, keep in mind that, that this is in the context of the As Jonathan said last week, Israel is not doing well. It's really starting to wrap its arms around Baal worship instead of the worship of the one true God. And this is a Baal territory. And this is Elijah sent to a Baal region. So he's going into the foreign deity's home turf. And Baal is supposed to be the one who has the control over not just the rain, fertility, but life and death itself. What do we learn about God who does the redeeming? First thing is this, is that the one true God is the one who is actually sovereign over death and life. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one who's actually sovereign over life and death. First off, he's sovereign over when it happens. He can take a child's life. He can take a teenager's life. He can take the fit 42-year-old's life. Not just the elderly. 
And he doesn't have to explain himself because he's God. It made me think about the words of, if you've ever read the beginning of Job, you know, Job had this amazing life. Amazing man, amazing family, amazing possessions. And then all of a sudden, the wheels come off. And his children die, and he loses his wealth, and he loses his physical health. And at the end of chapter 2, it's this picture. He's already been through all this devastation, but his own, like, the, the boils and, and painful lesions on his skin. And he's sitting on the ground scraping his skin. It's just, it's just awful. And his wife comes to him, and she says, curse God and die. And, you know, for a lot of my life, I thought, good grief. She's horrible. She's speaking out of grief the way real people speak out of grief. She may have loved God, for all I know. But she, that's not to give her a pass, but she's being a real human being. Curse God and die. And Job says to her, you're talking like one of the foolish women. He means women that don't know God. And then he says this, shall we receive good from the Lord and not receive evil? not receive calamity. You know, we, we, we find out what God we believe in, and I don't say this flippantly, when he hauls off and is God and does something sovereignly without checking with us first. God is sovereign over all life, all death, our lives, our deaths, the lives and deaths of all the people that we like best. He really is. But here's the thing. I mean, that's jarring to us, and in some ways it's frightening to us, but it's our only hope. And I, you know, I just say this week after week. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I stand before you, and I've never read these passages before that I'm preaching. And I have read these passages before, but I just see and notice things that I've never noticed before. One this week was that I never thought about the fact that when Elijah, and she says, man of God, did you come here to curse me? He says, give me the boy. Takes the lifeless body of her son up to this upper room where she's letting him stay, puts him on the bed, and he just says, God, what are you doing? And then he stretches himself out over the child and he prays, Give him his life back. And what blows my mind about that is that we have resurrection stories. He didn't have any. All he knew is that, Lord, Baal does not control life. I'm banking everything on the fact that you control life. So if you control life, you took out his soul. I don't even know how you would do this. Would you put it back in? And he does. That God can actually raise the dead, which is the ark of the whole Bible. But we really do ourselves a disservice if we don't say this. I mean, I think if I just left you with, God is sovereign over life and death, let's close in prayer. We've got a big, frightening God to go home and think about. And I mentioned this last week, I do want us to fear God. A life-giving fear, not a slavish fear. 
But he's not just sovereign over life and death. He's sovereign over mercy. And this is where you and I have a real advantage because we know things that even Elijah couldn't know and he was there. He knew the law of God and he knew the things that God revealed to him to say to other people. But Elijah did not have what we call a completed Old and New Testament, but we do. And you know what that allows us to know? Is, if I can put it this way, when, when the woman says, man of God, why did you come here? Did you come here to curse me? Did you come here to point out my sin so that my son is killed? And it, it's almost as if you can hear the voice of God saying, woman, when I remember your sin. You know, several Hebrew commentators, or commentators, I don't read Hebrew commentaries. Several people who know Hebrew, who wrote English commentaries, have said that, that when she says remember, she's not talking about her remembering or Elijah remembering. It's God remembering. You've brought my sin to God's remembrance, and look at what happened. And it's, when you have the whole Bible, it's as if you can hear God saying, woman, when I remember your sin, that doesn't lead me to kill your son. The only hope when I remember anyone's sin is going to be that I'm going to, and I just almost don't want to say it, kill my son. It says in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush him. All the sins of God's people, past, present, and future, even the ones that we haven't done yet, are put on to God's sinless Son, Jesus. And the wages, not of His sin, He doesn't have any sin, the wages of our sin and all our brothers and sisters' sin is death. Real death. Not temporal death. Wrath of God death. Separation from God death. And it falls on him. And where is this kind of sovereign, not just sovereignty over life and death, but sovereign mercy? Where, where, is, it, where is it showing signs and wonders? It's with a Gentile widow. And did you know that Jesus brought this woman up at the beginning of his ministry? He's in his hometown of Nazareth. He's asked to read in the synagogue. And he reads from Isaiah, and then he brings this woman up. So there were, there were Israelite widows in a tough place in that day, but God sent Elijah to this Gentile widow, and ooh, that flew all over them. Because what was Jesus highlighting? God has mercy on whom he has mercy. Because he's God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, that, there, that you getting cancer or you losing a family member or you going through a prolonged financial trial can't pay for your sin and mine can't pay for my sin? But that God sent His own Son, the man of God, his son to die 
to pay for our sin. And if he pays for our sin, there is no more punishment. If you believe in Jesus Christ, please, please erase from your vocabulary, God is punishing me. When Jesus drinks your punishment for you and he says from the cross, it is finished, it's finished. Amen? Amen. And God can burst in with that mercy and that good news wherever he wants. I'm going to end with this. One of the worst photographs to come out of the Vietnam War, and that's saying something, is that photograph that I bet most people in this room have seen. It won the Pulitzer Prize. It's a picture, it's a black and white photo. In the background is a village, Vietnamese village, that's been uh, napalmed. And you're looking at a road, and people are coming out of the village. The village, you really can't see it. It's just a wall of smoke. There's some American soldiers in the back. There's about four children. There's, the front is a boy running towards you, screaming. He's clothed, but where everyone's eye goes is the middle of the, of the picture. Do you know the one I'm talking about? And it's a nine-year-old girl without a stitch of clothing, and her, and her arms are off her body, literally no clothes, and she's screaming because her back has been napalmed. Have you ever wondered what became of her? And she just came out with a book last, uh, last fall in October. It's called Fire Road, the Napalm, Gar- the Napalm Girl's Journey Through the Horrors of War to Faith, Forgiveness, and Peace. And I won't go through the whole story, but God, after she went through disillusionment, cynicism, multiple religions, God brought her to faith in Jesus Christ. And, uh, and I'm just going to end with what she says. It says that just to this day when she talks about it and she sees that photograph, she'll, you know, she'll cry but, and laugh. So here's her words. I look back at that picture, how ugly it was. I was naked. I was in agony. I was so hopeless crying out. Why would that happen to a child? Does that, does that sound honest? Does that sound sanctimonious or does it sound honest? It sounds honest. Then she responds and prays, quote, Wow, Lord, you allowed that to happen to me. In the middle of that, you were there. And you saved me. It changed my life completely, turning darkness into light. From hatred to forgiveness, from sorrow to joy from hopelessness to hope. If I were to stand before you and say, wow, that looks really bleak right there, but God is at work. God blesses people. It would sound like total insensitivity and flippancy. When she says it, it holds weight. And she says, I'm screaming and I'm naked and I'm terrified and I'm alone and I'm hopeless And God was blessing me. Not because everything turned out great. Her back is still scarred. But he gave me Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please bless us. Not as we define it. Great health. 
long lives, problem-free employment, plenty of retirement money, death in our sleep. But bless us with yourself. Bless us with knowing you, whatever it takes. Bless us with the Lord Jesus and his smile. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.